has been just really, really pushing me about. There's something, there's something happening um, in the spiritual realm right now. And uh, it's kind of like this. You and I either, we're going to wake up and get in it, or we're going to miss it. And uh, it's going to be so absolutely, you talk about revival, uh, you know, and what revival is. There is, a, there is a push in the spirit right now of revival that God is doing. And uh, today, as I was spending time just to, here at the office, and, and I've had this happening for the last couple of weeks, that the, uh, and, and I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, a fabricator of stories to, just to try to, you know, make stuff up. The anointing was so strong today. I mean, I just sat in my office weeping today as the power of God was just all over me. Because, look, God, this is not, this is not, this is extraordinary, not ordinary. This is supernatural, not natural. And that there is a prophetic word that is being fulfilled um, that was prophesied years and years, actually 40 years ago that in the month of March, there would be a great outpouring of the Spirit, and that was 40 years ago right now. Now, we can choose as God's people to continue to do business as usual, or we can choose to get into the whole flow of what God is doing. Let me, let me make a couple of statements. And please, I'm not saying this to aggravate you tonight, but if it does, good. <laughs> God's people are not hungry enough. They're not hungry enough. I've seen spiritual hunger. I've seen what it does with people. I've seen what spiritual hunger does in a person's life that uh, Sharon and I, the hunger that we had where, you know, we would go to conferences and sit in our car all day, all day. We took our nap in the car. We didn't have, a, we didn't have anywhere to go. We sat in the, conf- in the car. We ate white bread and uh, potted meat. Anybody ever eat potted meat? But, uh, you know, you just slide a little bit on. We didn't even have any mustard. We didn't have any money for mustard. Um, You know, but we were hungry for God. I know services that we were in where we wanted to give so bad, we just started taking jewelry off and stuff that we had, our own possessions, pens and pencils and anything we could find to give because we were just desperate to have God move in our life. We fought for the front row of the church instead of trying to sneak out on the back. We were so hungry for what God was going to do that we were desperate. We got there early, we stayed late. And it wasn't because we were like so thought of so much about that, you know, the time element. We had plenty of other things that we could have done. But and we had little kids, three little kids. And uh, but we were determined to meet God. I wonder tonight if you're that determined in your life to meet God, to come into an encounter with the presence of the, the, the Holy Spirit in such an incredible way that you'd walk out of this place never the same again. Never the same again. That hunger has to wake up in the hearts of God's people. The only reason we're not hungry is because we're being satisfied by everything else. Yeah, and uh, it's a, it's such an incredible thing, and uh, 
you know, look, I'm your pastor. I love you. I'm with you through thick and thin. If you haven't figured that out after 25 years, well, I don't know what to tell you. But here's the thing. When we're hungry for the things of God, God always meets us in our hunger. You know, he meets us in that point and he fills, he says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for what? They shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. I want in our church that the anointing is so strong that sinners that come here without a relationship with God are so compelled in the presence of the holy God in this holy atmosphere that they know that they're undone. I want them to feel what I felt in 1977 up in my bedroom when I heard the voice of the Lord say, it's too late, and I knew I better get my britches in the kingdom of God right now or it's going to be too late. I don't want people to come here and think they got a lot of time. You know, in any given church today, you could give an altar call for people to be saved, and there'll be a few that'll come to Christ. We've had a whole bunch, but you can give an altar call for people who are backslidden or hearts have grown cold or whatever terminology you want to use, and you can have all kinds of people that are just not right with God. They've gotten far from God because they've gotten close to the world. Pastor, I thought you were going to build us up tonight. Well, I am. I'm trying to show you the way here, all right? <laughs> I'm trying to show you the way. There's a way here. So, you know, what we want is we want God to come in, do all the work, fire us up, you know, blast us, whatever, some kind. Of, and what God's saying is, look, I'm going to meet you where you'll let me meet you at. So if you didn't come here expecting anything, guess what? I'm not going to do anything. And if you came here tonight and you're expecting me to move powerfully in your life, then I'm going to move powerfully in your life. I want you to think about this for just a moment, and then we'll move into the book of Nehemiah. I want you to think of the most powerful thing you've ever seen God do in your life, in a service, in a, in a prayer time, in a devotional time. And I want you to think about this. That was yesterday. That's not today. And whatever God's going to do in your life will at least meet that point or exceed what you have already experienced. And if you're satisfied with where you've been, then tonight would be a good night for you to hit the altar and make it right with God. Hallelujah, Pastor. That's awesome. Thank you. Amen. Now, I'll preach. It'll take me longer to preach if you don't amen me, so I'm just warning you ahead. Thank you. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. All right. I want you, if you would, to open the book of Nehemiah with me because I believe that Nehemiah is part of the word that God is giving to his people. You know, Nehemiah, the way our book is, Bible is laid out, it's really weird because Nehemiah actually comes towards the end of the Old Testament, not where it's at in your Bible. You know, for most of you, it's before, I think, Psalms and Proverbs and Job and, and uh, just and it's right by Ezra. In fact, a lot of people believe that Nehemiah is the continuation of Ezra's book. But um, the truth is, is that uh, in about four, um, I think it's about 455, somewhere there about B.C., that... Uh, that um, 446 BC, 
that Nehemiah's book is written, or the story begins with Nehemiah. Ninety years prior to that, Ezra has gone to Jerusalem and has started to rebuild the wall. The last book that is written, the last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament, and that's the one that you're, you and I are familiar with, is Malachi. And Malachi, this is, this is so incredible, because by the end of Nehemiah, an incredible revival breaks out. An incredible revival breaks out. I mean, absolutely, people are repenting. People are, in fact, at one point when they're reading the scripture, there's so much excitement that some people are crying and some people are shouting in joy. And in the confusion of what's happening, nobody knows. No, nobody, no, nobody, it's so wild because you have people, this is the first time they've ever had this happen. And you've got people that are remembering when this had happened before. That's what's going to happen here. You'll have people that'll be like, this is absolutely, I'm healed, I'm delivered, I'm saved, I'm, I've been filled with the whole, this is absolutely, remember how joyful you were when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost or, or you saw you were healed in your body or you got saved at the altar or saved wherever you got, and man, there was so much, you were just like, wow, this is so absolutely awesome. You couldn't wait to tell everybody about what God had done in your life. There was a shout that came out of your life. But here's what happens. When you and I see that happening in other people's lives, it makes us weep because we remember they're, they're, they're getting what I got. They are experiencing what I've had happen in my life. This, this amazing thing that God is doing and is, is, is going to continue to do is, is, is so powerful that there will be shouting and there will be weeping all at the same time. Shouts of joy. Weeping of remembering. But you know what's really power, what's so perplexing to me is, is that seven years after this great revival breaks out, the book of Malachi is written. The prophet speaks. And when he speaks, he, he basically chastises the church seven years later because they've forgotten about tithing or they're giving everything that they got left over that they don't want. There are sacrifices, there's no real reverence for what God is doing, there's no holiness, the priests are out of control, the ministers, uh, the corruption that's in the, in the church at that time is in the, when we talk about church, I'm talking about the, is, the Israel church, it's Jerusalem church, is so out of control that on every level, and then God says, and then this is the last thing he says. He says, look, my son is coming, my servant is coming with healing in his wings, and uh, he will come, and when he comes, he'll restore the fathers to the son and the sons to the father, and then it ends, and for 400 years, God doesn't speak. Until a little girl gets spoken to, By an angel. Now, you know we and we could we could look at that and just say, man, I just don't. Wow, seven years later, I mean, amazing. I mean, the revival that happened it was powerful in Nehemiah. It was really, really powerful. It was legit. But seven years later, everything that had been done just kind of went by the wayside. You know, I was doing some studying about this. You know, we talk a lot about the year of Jubilee in the church and, you know, 
This is the year of Jubilee. And we know from Scripture that the year of Jubilee is the 50th year. And so in the 50th year, there was, a, there was all kinds of things that were going to happen. A trumpets would sound and a great celebration would happen. Right? You remember this? This is in uh, Leviticus 25. I mean, it's, it's, it's great to preach about because it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, there was debt forgiveness. People are liberated. And I mean, it's all this wonderful things. And it says it's a year of jubilee. But do you know that after God spoke that, Israel never celebrated a jubilee? Ever. Do you know why they couldn't celebrate a jubilee? Because they couldn't stay out of sin. And so they kept falling back into sin before the jubilee would come. They got close a couple of times, but then all of a sudden they got uh, uh, another nation would come in and conquer them and take everything away because they became sloppy and because they became disinterested and because they became apathetic. And so the next thing they had happen was here comes the adversary. And it wasn't that God was trying to destroy him. He's like, come on, guys, I'm with you. I want to help you. I'm on your side. Let's do this together. And they're like, nah, I'm busy right now. And I got other stuff going on and catch me later. And, you know, and, and, and I'll do it when I can. And so all of their relationship with God goes cold and, and distant. And then the next thing you have happen is Jubilee supposed to come and liberation supposed to happen and the trumpet supposed to sound, but there's no sound of a trumpet because everybody's in captivity again. Somebody else is in charge. Somebody else is in charge. Now the good news for you and I is Jesus is our Jubilee. So we don't have to wait every 50 years for the Jubilee. In fact, it's, it's, it, by some historians, they actually believe when Jesus got up and he read out of Isaiah 61 and he told them, you know, this is the year of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. And he told them all that the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel, the, you know, the good news to the poor and the opening of sight, that that was the scripture that they would read. They were supposed to be able to read in the year of Jubilee. But remember, their year of Jubilee was under Roman rule. They're still not liberated. They're under Roman dictatorship, and here they're, they're in bondage, and they're being told what they got to do. And then Jesus shows up in the synagogue, and he declares to them, and in this day, I'm your jubilee. So let's celebrate. I'm the jubilee. And you know what they did? They looked at him like some of you are looking at me right now. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? They ran him out of town. They ran him out of the temple. They were going to throw him off a cliff, except that he just walked in the midst of them and walked out. Never got to celebrate it, the year of Jubilee. So if somebody tells you that Israel had a Jubilee, they never actually got to get to one. But the good news is, you and I, because God knows we screw up, God knows that we sin, and God knows that we fail, and God knows that we can't make it 50 years without doing something stupid. He says, look, I'll come in and I'll liberate you. Just believe on me. What did he tell us? He said, just believe on me. He said, and I'll be the one to be your jubilee. I'll set you free. This is the acceptable, and he said it right there. And you look at, you look at that passage in Mark, Luke 4. He says, and this is this acceptable year of the Lord. And then he said it, and it is fulfilled in your, as soon as I'm telling you guys this, this thing is fulfilled today in your life. 
There are no more years of Jubilee. Jesus is our year of Jubilee. Amen. Jesus is your Jubilee. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus is my Jubilee. So you get the scenario here about Nehemiah, what's happening. All of us, here you got this guy that you got the, the Israelites. Ezra comes in, 90 years, temples rebuilt, even under, uh, even under the, the, uh, that they're in captivity. Everything gets done. There's a period of time that it's all stopped. Then Nehemiah comes in, and his job is going to be to rebuild the wall, which is going to be absolutely incredible. But uh, because Nehemiah builds this wall in 52 days, which 70 years they couldn't get it done. 70 years they tried to build this wall and couldn't build it, and in 52 days. I want you to think about what's, how many days are we into this year? Like 63 days? So minus 11, you, you, you go back 11 days, it, just from January to whatever that would have been in February, it was done. Something that couldn't have been done for 70 years. So Nehemiah was used mightily by God to do this. But, but I'm intrigued, and, and, I, and I think it's in, it's, it just is so important for us to look at this through the book of Nehemiah, how, that, that, how God got a hold of Nehemiah about this. Because remember, Nehemiah had never been to Israel. He had never gone to Jerusalem. He had never seen the temple. He had never seen the walls. He never saw any of this, okay? Nehemiah is a cupbearer in the, in the, in the, in, for Xerxes, or, yeah, Xerxes, and he's a cupbearer, which means he's very close because that's the number one way they'd wipe these kings out was by poisoning. So he's a cupbearer. He's a taster. You know, he's the guy that brings the cup. The king absolutely trusts him. More than likely, Nehemiah is castrated because he's in the presence of the queen, and they would not let a man that wasn't castrated in the presence of the queen. And so here he is, he's in bondage, he's a cupbearer, he's got a nice job, very nice job. I mean, he's living in the king's palace, and his life's going along, and he's never really, I mean, you know, when you've never been somewhere, what reference points do you have to equate in your life for, you know, he's never seen this in Jerusalem, just heard the stories about it. He knows Ezra's there, and he's heard about the progress, but I want you tonight as we look at this, I'm just so excited about this uh, message tonight. Because this is where God causes a man to have a broken heart over broken walls. God gives a man a broken heart over broken, over broken walls. I want you to look with me at verse 1 here if you would, and uh, we'll, we'll just kind of dig through this. We're just going to read through. It's only 11 verses, chapter 1, and... Um, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, uh, and it came to pass in the month of Chisalu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, and they say that's about October, uh, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, and it actually, this was one of his brothers, um, came, and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had, that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, 
look, everybody look up at me just for a minute. This had, this activity had been going on for 90 years back in Jerusalem. So for however old Nehemiah is, he knows about the problems that are there. This is not news to Nehemiah. It's not. I mean, he's hearing about, it's not like just all of a sudden he finds out the walls are broken down, you know? You mean there's trouble for the people there? This would have already been known about because there were always people coming and going. So he'd have heard about this before. But there's something about it whenever you've heard something and then you hear something from the voice of God. You know, all of us here can acknowledge in our lives that, that, that there was somebody in our life shared the gospel with us probably before we heard the gospel and received it. You might have been watching Billy Graham on TV or you might have some family member of yours that you thought was a total quack all of a sudden just, you know, got saved and started telling you about Jesus and, and, and you're just like, yeah, whatever, you know, that's... Well, if that works for you, that's, that's good. That's good if that works for you. I mean, you know, we all have seen things and heard things, and it didn't cause any change in our life whatsoever. Do you agree with that? I mean, just because you hear about something doesn't mean you get motivated towards it. There's this one channel we watch, and I mean to tell you, I, I mean, it just, it, it seems like every other commercial is about a kid that has cancer, or a dog that's been abused. All right? And I mean, they take them little dog, and, and the cancer one's hard. I mean, it's hard to watch that too. And they take the, but the dog one, because I got a little dog there in the house. And that little dog's, you know, they take pictures and the dog's shaking and it's looking up at you and they're like, could you not send $15 to help this poor have any of you seen those kinds of deals? You know, little cats with their eyes matted. I mean, just, and I watch that, and you know what? It doesn't compel me to send $15. Now, do I know it's real? Absolutely it's real. And do you know it's real? Are there suffering dogs and cats out there? Absolutely. And I watched the one with the kids with the cancer too, and I mean, those people at St. Jude's are doing an awesome work. I mean, absolutely Awesome, but there's a lot of other things that hit my heart harder. You know, like what Bill Wilson's doing in New York City or what's happening over in Iraq with people coming to cry. Or, you know, there are things that, that compel, but, but I watch those things and it bothers me. Does it bother you? I mean, it bugs me. And I look over at my poor little Esther, you know, you know and she's sitting there and I'm thinking, dear God, Lord, I can't, I tell Sharon, I say, I can't, can't watch this anymore. You know, unfortunately with TV, you can just hit the channel, right? And move to another one instead of having to deal with that. Or I'll call Esther over and go, oh, I'm so glad you're okay. And I'm so glad you're, you don't have no problems. And I mean, it, it almost brings tears to my eyes. But here's the thing. I know. Here's the thing. There, yeah. there are lots of things that you see in your life you do nothing about. Do you agree with that? I mean, it bugs you. You might see a guy that's begging on the street, 
And it bothers you that he don't have a job, but you might not. That don't mean you're pulling money out of your pocket and giving it for whatever reason. All right? Well, Nehemiah, he hears about this, and they tell him about the wall, and they tell him about the people are having trouble, and it's burned with fire. And then in verse 4, and then something happens. He says, and it came to pass. Man, I love that. If you write in your Bible, just underline that word. And it came to pass. Something happened. He said, man, as soon as I heard this, it came to pass. When I heard these words that I sat down and I wept. And I mourned certain days and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I mean, this thing changed him. It wasn't like before. All of a sudden, it's like when you came to Christ. It wasn't just like you just was hearing a nice story about Jesus. It was like the hand of God was on you and said, this is real. You need to get this right. Today is your day. Do you remember that? Do you remember the day that happened? The day you walked an aisle? The day that you stood up at a church? The day that you prayed in your wherever bedroom or where in your car or out in the field or wherever you were at, do you remember that day? You'd heard the gospel before that. You knew about God. You might even have believed in God. That didn't mean you were saved until you called on the name of the Lord Jesus and said, God, I can't, I need you. See, it's that, that hand of God got on him, that, that it came to pass Man, I'm praying tonight you have a come-to-pass moment in this house. Hallelujah. That, that it's not just like another Saturday night where you came to church and you were like, well, that was a really nice message, and boy, didn't Tao and the team do a great job, and, and then we go home and it's back to life as usual. I want you to walk out of this place tonight with a came-to-pass anointing on your life that you go home and you're just like, something's not, something's not, there's something's got to happen. In fact, it becomes so strong that like what happens with Nehemiah is he doesn't know what to do. So the thing that when you don't know what to do, he begins to pray. He begins to talk to God. He begins to say, Lord, I don't know what, uh, this is bad. I mean, this thing got on him. He was what I would like to call broken up. Broken up. You know, we don't like in the church today to talk about being broken. We like to talk about healing, but we don't like to talk about being broken. We like to talk about, you know, uh, we like to talk about all the things, the good side of things. And we're real, and we are a little bit in the church, a little nervous about talking about the broken life and about the sacrificial life because we're like, well, people probably won't want to do that. Well, I don't want to do it. I, I, I think if you want to do it, something's wrong with you. But here's the thing: you need to do it because you can't be built up until you're broken down. You know, when I coach basketball. Man, I get a bunch, you know, I get a little, I won't talk about the girls. Girls were a little easier to deal with than the boys. You get you get 12, 14 boys. Every one of them thinks they're the next NBA all-star. My job in the first two days is to totally put them into chaos in their life. So what I would do, I had a rule. Now, you can't do this anymore, okay, as coaches, because 
you know, they, they have like, you know, parents get aggravated at you for it. But my goal was is that I was going to work these boys until one of them threw up and quit. Because I figured if I'd pushed them all far enough, when one of their buddies began to run to a fur trash can and began to vomit in it and then said, Coach, I quit. I don't want to do this. I don't want this. I knew at that point that I was now at a tipping point or a breaking point with these boys. And they would always be like, you know, what a, you know, they'd be like, well, you know, Coach, he's, you know, you're pushing us too hard and you're making it too difficult for us. And, you know, our other coaches never did this. And I don't care. You know, when you go in the military, yeah. any of you guys been in the military, you know, when they take you in, they, your drill instructor has one job, and that is to break you down. You don't get to go over and go, well, you know, I was thinking maybe today I'd do maybe 10 push-ups. How's that sound? Would that be okay? And then we'll go eat some chow. You know what chow is, right? Put on the feed bag, and then we'll come back. Maybe I'll do... How, how, how does 10 sit-ups sound? Does that sound good to you? And I'll do that, and then, you know, maybe I'll take me a little nap this afternoon. Would that be okay? And then, then after the nap, we'll get up. It'll be about dinner time, and then we'll go eat, and then tonight we'll see a movie. Wouldn't that be great? You know, that drill instructor, he does not care one bit what you think. He's like, he is going to push you, and when you're throwing up and you want to quit, he's going to keep pushing you and pushing you. Because, listen, because, not because he hates your guts. I'm sure there's some that do. But not because he hates you, but because he knows that if you have the attitude that you know what you're doing, you will never know their way of doing things. And when you get out in the battle, you're going to cost people their lives. And your own. There you go. Right? So I'm coaching, man. I'm like, they're like, well, you know, Coach, what do you think about this play? Here's what I think about that play. Forget about it. We're doing this play. We're doing things my way. We're going to run. We're going to watch the movie Hoosiers. I mean, I love in Hoosiers. You know their first thing in Ho- Anybody seen Hoosiers before? They're, they say to Coach Normandale, their coach, our other coaches never did this before. He said, I don't care, on the line. He makes those, they're like, well, when do we get to shoot? He said, you're not going to shoot. You're going to run. You're going to dribble, and you're going to run, and you're going to dribble, and you're going to run, and then we're going to dribble and run some more. And guys quit, get mad, throw in the towel, walk out of the building. But you, they build a championship team out of this group of boys. Well, you know, in the church, it's very similar. In our spiritual journey with God, God is not interested in our opinion. Well, Lord, here's how I was thinking you might work in my life today. You know, I get up in the morning, you know, and when I get up, I just, you know, Lord, I just want you to do this for me and do this for me. And, and you know, and, and I want you to do this. And, and God says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put something in you that's going to drive you to your knees. I'm going to put something inside of you that you don't know what to do with. That's going to tear you up so much in your life that you're going to have to fall on your face and allow me to work in the midst of your brokenness. Now, God doesn't make bad situations in our lives to get our attention. God doesn't make evil. He is not an evil God, all right? He's a good God. 
And so, but God uses bad situations in our lives, which this world is evil. Have you noticed that yet? There's lots of evil in the world, plenty to go around, and God uses that. See, to be built up, we've got to be broken down. God takes Nehemiah, who's been through all this, he's heard all this before. He's the king's cupbearer. He's heard the, he's got the 411, man. He knows what's going on because he's with the king. But on this day, oh, Lord Jesus, let this be one of those days for all of us. It came to pass. He said that it was so overwhelming. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a word that's used for the word prophecy, and it's, the, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, Massah, M-A-S-S-A. And what it means is it's a, it refers to the, the hand of the Lord. And, you know, we talk about that sometimes in the church, and the hand of the Lord was on me, and, and the hand of the Lord came on me. And, but Massah, what it means is, is that it, it, it's that the hand of the Lord came on you, and when it did, it was so heavy that it put a burden inside of you, a burden inside of you. And that burden was so strong, and then the hand of the Lord lifted off of you. But guess what didn't go with the hand? The burden. The burden stayed, the hand lifted. That God imparted. It's an impartation that God puts in our lives, that, that all of a sudden we're, we're radically, it, it, it changes us. You know, when I, when I felt the call of God to ministry, I, I, I started out thinking I was going to be a Methodist pastor. But you know, many are the plans, the Bible tells us, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord directs our paths. So, you know, whatever you think you're going to do, I'm all for dreaming and planning and all that. But here's the thing, God has final say upon approval. He decides, and he already knows what the end's going to be like. Because he, he, he sees the end from the beginning, so he already knows where he's going to get you to. He's just not going to let you see it all. Because he knows you'll mess it up if he gave it all to you ahead of time anyways. So, man, I'm like, I'm going to be a Methodist pastor. So I went to my Methodist pastor. I felt the call of God, and I says, well, what do you got to do to be a preacher? And he gave me a book, and which we typically do in Christian churches when we're trying to help people. We give them a book or a CD or a DVD. And so, <laughs> so I'm, uh, I got this book, I start reading through it, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, this is not connecting whatsoever. And then this thing happened in my life that, that like here I'm thinking I'm going to be a Methodist pastor, and, and so I'm learning how to be a lay pastor. I remember the first time I got up in the pulpit, thank God it was a wooden pulpit because my knees were knocking behind that. I mean, I'm serious, I was like this. And I, I but I knew that God had, there was something there. I just didn't know how to work it all out. And, and, and nobody was really guiding me through it. And so uh, I, 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 I heard about this mission trip. And I love basketball so much that these guys were going overseas and they were going to play basketball. And so I decided that I was going to go do that. And so I, I contacted the organization. I says, well, I want to go play. I love to play for 40 days. We were going to play like 30, or uh, in 30 days we're going to play like uh, I think it was uh, 32 games in 30 days, and the Philippines. And so I thought, this is awesome. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to be in the ministry. And I mean, I got all kinds of bad things in my life. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sold out to God at this point in my life. But I, I say, okay, I'll, I'm going to do this. So I, I sign on the dotted line. And back then, I forget, maybe you needed $1,000 to go, which in 19... 
79. That was a lot of money in, in 79. And uh, so I'm like, I don't know where it's going to come from, but I'm just going to trust God and, and we're gonna write letters and ask for support. And so I did that. And I went to the Philippines. And I mean, God put his hand on me and I had a burden for ministry, for, for, for missions. I mean, I care. I love the Filipino people. I mean, I absolutely loved them. I mean, it was just like, you know, I just, I saw people coming to Christ, little kids, you know, that are coming up and, you know, and, 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 and want to hear the gospel from us. And, and I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And then I came home. Now, really, one of the really cool things that happened right before I went on this trip was is that my dad invited me to a full gospel businessmen's meeting and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit right before I went. Right before I went to the Philippines. So not only did I go to the Philippines as a saved individual, I went as a saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit and power individual who prayed in tongues. And praying in tongues helps a lot on an airplane. (laughs) A lot. You know, when you're not in control... When you're not in control of an environment, praying in tongues is so absolutely supernatural, powerful. So I'm in the Philippines, and God's using me there powerfully, and wonderful things are happening. And I come home, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going on the mission field. That's where God called me. And so that was my plan. All the rest of my career in college, playing basketball, that I'm going on the Philippines. God brought me into uh, to meet Richard Peel, who was our uh, great man of God down in uh, Roma, Texas, on the Mexican border, had a church in Miguel Alman, and uh, we, you know, I just knew that's where I was supposed to go. I started talking to Brother Peel, and he was he would he was an older guy, but he had a lot of wisdom about stuff, and he had great faith. I mean, he didn't understand much about healing, but he knew how to believe God in for finances, and uh, so. Brother Peel, I just felt so close to him, and and so I so I committed, went down, was a school teacher there, and a man, I I'm thinking this is it. Sharon and I are called here. Uh, this is what God has called us to do. Sharon gets pregnant, um, and you know we're just thinking we're gonna. We went and told the doctor Musset at the hospital, and he was he says I'm so excited we we'll get to deliver this bait your baby, and I mean we're just we're, Sharon and I we were just like this is it, man. We were at that time in our lives we were so committed. We were working in the office. We were doing youth pastor. I was an adult Sunday school teacher. We cleaned the church. We cleaned the. We went to Pastor Peel and we said, "Look, look, is there anything more we can do?" And he says, "Well, you know, there's trash all over the." And we said, "We'll do that. We we, we want to do that. We were so hungry to do what God wanted to do in our lives. We were like." We're going to do everything we can. We had a Bible study in our home. Sharon would go pick up teenagers. We had a little Mustang too. I mean, little hatchback. Sharon would have Mexican teenagers hanging out of the back of this thing. She got 12 in a hatchback. And these aren't little Mexican. These are big kids. I mean, adults, all right? They're all over the place, and they'd come to, they'd come to our house, they'd come to uh, the school, and we'd love on them and preach to them and talk to them about the bat. And, man, we were like, this is it. Woo! I got a letter one day from Sharon's mom. She got a letter. Her mom's telling her that uh, the church that, we, that she grew up had been a part of and that they had planted, was gonna, they were talking about closing it. It was called the Christian Center at the time. 
And I'm like, oh, man, that's horrible. I mean, and she's just like, you know, just pray for the... So I sit down with this letter. Sharon says, I got to go to the store or the office or go get the mail or something like that. And, uh, and I'm sitting in the... I could still see myself. I'm sitting in the living room on our, our couch that we believed God for. And I'm sitting there and I, I open this letter up and I'm just reading through it. And I said, you know, Lord, these people in Marietta, they deserve, Lord, a good pastor. And uh, so, Lord Jesus, I'm just coming before you right now, and I'm just asking you, Lord, to send them a pastor that will love them and minister the word to them and guide them. And all of a sudden, wham, just like that, I'm out of my body. I'm not, like, in the room anymore. And I'm standing there, and I'm watching Moses up on the mountain talking to God. And God says, go lead my people. And Moses says, "Uh, no. Because I don't talk good and because that's not what I've envisioned happening in my life. And this isn't the direction I thought things were going to go. You send somebody else to do it, okay? You send them somebody that can do this. You send them, you send them a leader that will be, you know, knows what they're doing. I'm not the guy, okay? And God said, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, these tears just be, and I wasn't like, moved to tears. It was just like tears weeping started. I guess that's what you'd call it. Begin to flow down my face. And I heard the voice of the Lord say to me, you're going to go pastor that church. And I told the Lord at that moment, I says, well, wait a minute. You called me to be a missionary. And now you're telling me I got to go pastor. I don't want to go pastor. I want to do mission work. I'm having the time of my life doing this. I don't know anything about pastoring. I'm a Methodist. I, what do they know? They don't know anything. I mean, my pastor didn't even know how to tell me how to pastor. Now, there might be better now, but back then, it was a whole different story. So, and the Lord said, son, he says, here's the deal I'll make with you. If you will go back and pastor, he says, I'll raise up far more missionaries through your pastoral ministry than you ever could by being out on the mission field. That's what he told me. So Sharon comes walking through the door. And when she walks into the, the comes back, I said, I got to tell you something. And she looks at me and she goes, we're moving to Marietta. You know, a godly wife is a great thing, but it can be a source of aggravation as well. Why do they get to know stuff before us guys know stuff? That doesn't seem right to me. But anyway, she, she says, we're moving to Marietta. And I said, yeah. And I started telling her what had happened. And, you know, and we're just like, well, how are we going to make all that happen? And I'm like, I don't know. And then I had to go tell Reverend Peel because he was built banking on us being there. And we didn't even, the church wasn't even interested really in us pastoring there. And all the details that had to be worked out. But see, when the hand of God comes on you, and then it lifts, the burden doesn't leave. You might have a great experience with God in your past, but that thing that he put in you is still there. The gifts, listen to this, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. The word repentance means to turn away. Whatever God gifted you with, he is not turning away from in your life. And you might say to me tonight, well, pastor, I've sinned. Get in line with everybody else that's got gifts in their life. 
well, I've disappointed. I have failed the Lord. Uh, get in line with everybody else that's got gifts in their life as well. You know, God doesn't, didn't call Nehemiah because Nehemiah was the sharpest tool in the shed. Nehemiah because it was his good pleasure to call Nehemiah and it came to pass it came to pass see God doesn't care what you don't have can I, can I say that tonight by the spirit of God I want you to know God does not care what tools you don't have right now because he knows that that will be your breaking points in your life where you will turn to him and pray to him and then he can glorify and make himself famous in your life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. A man with a broken heart over broken walls. Broken heart Brokenness is a powerful thing. Uh, there are so many great passages that, that talk about this. I'm just going to read through a couple of them real quick here to you. And uh, I, I just want you to hear these and we'll, we'll stop here. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord, is, the Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart and saves those of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 7. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things which hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Joel 2, 13. Rend your heart, and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentance, and repenteth him of evil. Second Corinthians seven ten says, First godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And it came to pass. And it came to pass. Prophetically, Lord God, you are speaking to every person here tonight. Lord, there are two people that know our heart, you and we know our own heart. And maybe tonight as we look at our own heart, we're like, man, if I'm weighed in the balance, I am found lacking tonight so desperately. There are things that are just not right. My relationship with God is, if it's not, it's just coasting right now. It's just a coast. It's a, just enough to get by, just enough. I'm not desperate. I'm not hungry. I'm not broken. But yet you dwell, dwell with the broken. Father God, I pray tonight that not one person would leave this building, that their hearts would not be broken towards you. 
Lord, may your hand touch every believer here tonight. May it come to pass. Put your hand on them, Lord God. They don't need my hand. They need your hand. They need your burden, Lord. While I'm praying, I feel like well, there are some of you that just want to come to the altar right now. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. You come and kneel. Whatever you need to do here right now, come and do it. Make it right. Maybe God's put his hand on you and is calling you into ministry. And look, you've been making excuses for what God has called you to do. Well, what about this and what about that? Look, God's going to take care of all the what about this and what about that. He's calling you to accept the call that he's put on your life. And he is not sorry that he put it in you. That burden. If your heart's grown cold, look, friend, I want. I, I, there's only one way I know that that can change, and that's in brokenness. And that really starts with you and I just saying, Lord, I turn away from where I've been going, and I just throw myself at your feet tonight. Would you come tonight and throw yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus? Would you lay, kneel, bow, this altar and say, Lord Jesus, I throw myself at your feet. I stop resisting. I come to you tonight, Lord Jesus. Without one plea, without one argument, I come. I surrender all to you. I surrender all to you, Lord Jesus. Is there anybody that would say that's me? Look, if you're waiting for somebody else to make a move, stop waiting and get up here. I feel it in the spirit. Sometimes we're just in church, we're so funny, we're like, well, when somebody else does it, I don't want to be the only one. Look, you might be the very one that causes everybody else to make a move. Thank you. God's calling you. It's okay. Amen. God's calling you. He's pushing you. He's pushing your heart. He's stirring that burden in you. It's coming to pass right now. It's coming to pass right now. Right now. See, when that hunger is so great, you forget about all your questions. and You forget about all the, the things you can't figure out. You, you just... <laughs> it's like almost like when you're at that point, you know, where you're so hungry. You're just so hungry that you'd eat just about... You'd eat about anything. I mean, it just, and without thinking about it, anything tastes, bitter stuff tastes sweet when you're starving. I mean, you're just, you need it. I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you. I need your help tonight, Lord. I have no burden in my life, Lord God. You know, maybe that's you tonight. You say, I just don't have any kind of, you know, inside of me. I I do what I know is right, but I I carry no real flame inside of me.